0: Welcome. Book Club with Michael Smirkanish is now in session. Hey, gang, I am on a reading roll lately. I think about just the last 10 days. Stephen Levy's excellent book on Facebook. Uh, I also read Brian Greene's latest book on the uh, universe. It's called Until the End of Time. And now this. Nelson Schwartz covers economics for The New York Times, has a brand new book out just today. It is called The Velvet Rope Economy, How Inequality Became Big Business. It is terrific. It is provocative. And this is Nelson Schwartz. Hey, Nelson, congratulations on the book release. Thank you so much. I really
1: appreciate it.
0: So this all begins with your newspaper reporting about concierge medicine and cruise ships and leisure. And now you realize, hey, I'm on to something much larger. True?
1: Yeah, exactly. You really see it in every sphere of life. I really was taken aback as I did more reporting. I found what I call the velvet rope economy in education, in healthcare. care. You, you name it, there's stratification and tiering in which we become sort of almost like a caste society.
0: And I think that's what I, I f- was failing to recognize. I, I was familiar with some of the component parts. In fact, I've been a beneficiary of some of the component parts, but I really didn't understand the macro of it until I read your book. Let let me ask you this, because to write the book, you lived many of these experiences. Which was the most eye-opening for you? I think uh,
1: the most eye-opening for me was the VIP tour at Disney. You know, you go to Disney World, and you're whether it's Pirates of the Caribbean or the uh, Seven Dwarfs mine shaft, you know, you're waiting in line, your kids are kind of getting impatient, you know, you, know, you can only give them so many toys or treats, and it takes an hour. Did, there was none of that on this. This is every line. We went right to the front. We went up the back door in some of these things, the cast entrance. Um, just every line was sort of magically disappeared, and it really was sort of a totally different experience and what was interesting about it is it's very seductive. You, know, you go in there thinking you're egalitarian, you're a parent, you, know, you, don't, you don't want your kids to get the idea that they're, they can always jump the line. And then you go to this you know, this, this system where you know, money basically creates a, a virtual velvet rope, and you go right to the front, and it's, it's very, very seductive
0: well and and I know from you that this has caused some consternation within Disney because when they become practitioners of the velvet rope economy it's thought to be it's thought to be at odds with Walt Disney, the founder's vision for what this was all supposed to be
1: yeah, that's very interesting. Disney is a little bit more ambivalent about all this than some of the other theme park operators so Everybody gets at least a few fast passes when you go to Disney, and you'll notice that the merge point, you know, where one line goes into the other and where you, where you jump in front often is in the dark, like, uh, like in, uh, in um, Pirates of the Caribbean. The other theme park operators have no such compunctions about it. They're, they're okay with the full Velvet rope treatment. So at it, it, Six Flags or at Universal, you can just buy your way to the front of the line, no questions asked. Nelson, take
0: me into the Harmon Lounge at Yankee Stadium.
1: So basically, you get to the stadium with your, with your Legends tickets. You enter through a different entrance. Everybody welcomes you like old friends. You go in. You're, you're in this. You're in the you know kind of gourmet food hall with the top restaurant food from New York City. And then within that, there's this Harmon Lounge where you can't go. And I said, I said, who goes to go there? The Harmon Lounge is reserved for people who have only tickets in the front row of the, of the first and third base line, so the absolute front row. It's, it's more of the same. It's just more gray leather furniture and TVs and a bar, but it's reserved for this select group. And it seemed to me to be a metaphor for the velvet rope economy where there's always one more thing. I mean, there's always one more select group that you can't join as a way of getting you to trade up.
0: And what's interesting to me, as one who watches a lot of games on TV, is to say, and you correct me if I'm wrong, these are often the folks who aren't in those seats, or if they are, they seem to be looking at their iPhones.
1: Yeah, you know, I think something is lost. You know, when I remember going to uh, baseball games as a kid, I'm 51, um, it, it was more of a communal experience, and you were sort of there with other fans, you were there to see the game. In this place, it's maybe more to do deals or to talk to clients, And a lot of the time, the people are looking at their phones rather than at the field.
2: This is the Book Club with Michael Smirconish podcast from SiriusXM. Listen to Michael live weekdays on POTUS, Sirius XM channel 124 and on the SXM app.
0: Sporting events, tourism, medical care, insurance, education. In the book, The Velvet Rope Economy, you walk through each of these sectors of society and you document how it has become a stratified environment. I have to say this, though. Time and again, I found myself as a reader saying, well, wait a minute. Hasn't it always been like this, maybe just not with the structured cottage industry to support the, mm-hmm. the wealthy among us?
1: What's changed? I feel like it, it is more industrial, and you have companies that have sprung up to take advantage of it. I feel like companies are more focused on the 1%, because basically, you ask yourself, where in our society has the growth of disposable income been? And it's been among the richest Americans. So companies are like Willie Sutton. They're going to go where the money is, and they're going into this into this area because they want to grow. And if you want to grow, serving the rich is how you do it. So it's become much more structured and much more industrial. Um, the other thing I would say is, I think in areas that were a little bit more egalitarian years ago, or uh, like education and healthcare, you're seeing more of it. I mean, you, as you say. You've always had elements of it in the travel sphere. I think it's become a little bit more extreme with nine different lines to board a plane on American Airlines or a ship within a ship on Norwegian. But now you're seeing it with college counseling, with hospitals, with red blanket patients at Stanford for donors who give a certain amount. I think you're seeing it in other areas that you didn't years ago. You argue
0: that uh, the skyboxes should stay But there needs to be a way, a means of getting an autograph at Yankee Stadium the way we all remembered when we were growing up. Big question I wanted to ask Nelson Schwartz. Is it possible to find balance between capitalism and egalitarian ideals?
1: I think there is. You know, in the conclusion of my book, I look at some companies and institutions that do it differently. You have Southwest Airlines, the most profitable airline in U.S. history. They don't have classes, and they've obviously done very well. Or you look at the Green Bay Packers. The Green Bay Packers have luxury box seats, but when they redid their stadium a few years ago, they made sure that the ordinary seats were still very, very good and weren't blocked by the elite seats. And I think they've really tried to strike a balance and have been successful at it.
0: Let me uh, read something uh, that comes from your book. It's page 52. Whether via envy or gratitude, the velvet rope economy's fusion of technology, loyalty programs, and the age-old human need for status has changed the game for consumers. And that's left even some veterans of the marketing world deeply uneasy with what they see as the rise of something approaching a caste system for customers. Nelson, as you well know, you draw on a tremendous amount of, of psychology In this book, there are a number of academics who are quoted. I'll give an example that stands out in my mind. Envy
1: becomes a sales tool. Explain. Basically, uh, when you walk through the first class cabin on some airlines, they know that that creates a marker in your mind. If you take Emirates, most of the passengers on Emirates are stuck in the back of the plane flying, you know, between New Delhi and the Emirates, something like that. But they've created this image of, of, of first-class experience. So when you walk through the first-class cabin, you're very much aware of it. Then, then you go back to your seat you know, with no leg room and so forth. But that's created a marker in your brain where you feel that urge to trade up and aspire to more. And cruise ships use it, too. On um, Royal Caribbean, the elite coastal kitchen with frosted glass windows is a cafe just for sweet guests. You have to pass by it to get to Windjammer, which is the cafe for everyone else, and that creates a sort of a desire to say, hey, the next time I'm on board ship, I want to go to Coastal Kitchen.
0: Right. In other words, uh, you talk about the haven on I think it's Norwegian yes. and the impact yes, exactly. of keeping the hordes at bay. The VIPs yep. value their exclusivity. And, and I thought to myself, well, aren't they pissing off everybody else? And what I learned from you and from the psychology of this is that the people who aren't in the haven, they want to be and will be more inclined to upgrade
1: if they're able to. Right. And the executives have spent a lot of time thinking, how do we balance this out? What the cruise ship executives found is, if you do it within the same restaurant, then people get mad. You can't have one group of tables getting better service than everyone else. That's a recipe for disaster. But you can have two separate restaurants next to each other. That creates enough space that you'll have what they call benign envy. And you won't get the kind of resentment that you see. Sometimes breaking out on airplanes, and uh, you know, with business and. Can I can I tell you?
0: I I have flown uh, in the last twenty four hours twenty four hours in the last twenty four months more than at any other period in my life, and because I live outside of Philadelphia, Philadelphia is my hub. Philadelphia, as you document, is also the American Airlines hub. So Mm -hmm. uh, I am recognized by American Airlines for my flight frequency. But Nelson, it pisses me off that they announce something called Concierge Key that boards first. And yep. to your to your point, I have recently like made a mental note. I've got to figure out what Concierge Key is
1: because I'm not. Concierge Key is their super elite frequent flyer club, and uh, yes, if you get into that, you'll get to board first. What's interesting about American is. There are nine different groups to board the plane on American, which to me feels pretty extreme. But the stewards and stewardesses, they, they have taken to calling the people group nines, and they're wary of them when they board because they come aboard their last. They're so angry. There's nowhere to put their coat or their bag. They have to check their bag and pay for it. But the group nines have gotten a reputation of their very own.
0: Well, and they walk through first class and they see somebody slipping, sipping a, a Bloody Mary and, and all yeah. it does is infuriate them. And, and I know the the social science that you cite in the book, which says there is there is more likelihood to be trouble in the back of the plane if there is a front of the plane.
1: Yes, yes. I mean, there's a lot of anger. I mean, people have said to me as you know, when I'm talking about the book, well, it's always been this way. But I say no. You're seeing something new. I mean, we saw that you know huge debate on the internet about backing up your seat uh, that we saw last night. Right. Month. Yes. And and I think people are so keyed up about this. People are very worked up uh, about flying and just how assaultive an experience it can be if, if so, you're not if you're not on the right side of the velvet rope. So uh, let's talk about the the big picture
0: societal implications. I was thinking of Charles Murray. When I was reading the book, in particular, his uh, coming apart book, I don't know if you read it or are familiar with the subject matter, yes. but yes. you are. OK, yes. and let me let me just remind the audience that this was him talking about Kensington in Philadelphia, Belmont, outside of Boston in Massachusetts, one wealthy area, one blue collar area that that's really on the decline. And the takeaway I remember from the book is because we've become such a gated society, virtual and literal, we are not having common experiences and when we're not having common experiences we're not understanding developing empathy for our fellow man i mean that's my very rough takeaway from murray and i thought of that while i was reading the velvet economy the 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 the, the velvet uh, let me get the book title correct sorry about that when i was talking about the velvet rope economy because that's the net effect right i mean there are many of us who are just not hanging out with folks at the other end of the socioeconomic spectrum whatever that might be
1: that's my feeling. Uh and I I I had that in mind too as I was writing. And you know, it it can be little things like you know in in, um, in the sunbelt you've got a lot of places with HOV lanes, you know, but now you can ride in the HOV lane as a single driver if you just pay up, you know? So basically you can speed by everybody who's stuck in traffic. Um you know, you can pay to do that. And it struck me as, you know, just the re- more and more experiences were atomized. Where it, where we experienced as individuals, not as a collective group. And um, and the stadium really sp- said that to me as well, you know, where, where you can't walk down and get an autograph and mix with other fans. And I, I think it explains some of the anger and dissatisfaction out there. I mean, you wonder why people are dissatisfied or frustrated. When, until the coronavirus came along, the stock market was at a record high, unemployment's at a record low, job numbers, job creation's very strong. All the economic signals are pointing in the right direction, but there's a tremendous amount of dissatisfaction. You've got a Democratic socialist who came very close to getting the nomination, and you wonder why— all this is going on, why there's this dissatisfaction. And I think this explains part of that.
0: Well, the coronavirus could, frankly, bring together exactly what you wrote about in all of these different sectors. I mean, it it could impact how some are able to respond from a travel perspective, from a Mm -hmm. medical perspective, from an education perspective, from an entertainment perspective. All of these things might be embodied in this current crisis.
1: Well, people can withdraw. You know, that's one thing about the velvet rope economy. You don't have to take the subway. You know, you take an Uber. You don't have to, you know, take uh, a train to the to the airport. You take a helicopter. You go in a you know a small group uh, to the plane, and you, you don't mix. I mean, you can you can essentially withdraw, and that, the developed rub economy helps you do that.
0: Are you fearful that left undeterred, this could lead to
1: violence? I worry, I mean, the 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 kind of violence you lead to is what you would see on a plane, where someone uh, pushing their seat back, and instead of just videotaping it, actually a fight breaking out. I mean, I feel like what I worry more is just that there's more anger and more of a sense of, you know, we're not all in it together, you know, where it's each man for himself in our society. That's what I worry about.
0: Nelson, you, you have inspired uh, today's daily survey question. Here's how I worded it. See if you take issue with it. Should extreme stratification in fields like travel and leisure be curbed, or should the free market be left undeterred? First of all, what do you think of the question?
1: I think it's spot on. Okay, I mean, it's, awesome. It's a tough one. It's a tough one because yeah. we live in a free market society, on the other hand, you know, these are regulated industries. I mean, the FAA and other, and other government agencies regulates travel. So it's not like there's no regu- you know, regulatory framework to, to handle this.
0: My audience knows if I didn't mean it, I wouldn't say it. The book is tremendous. I wish you all good things uh, with the velvet rope economy, how inequality became big business. Thank you. Thank you. That's Nelson Schwartz. Book Club with Michael Smirkonish. New episodes drop Mondays,
2: Wednesdays, and Fridays. Listen to the Michael Smirkanish program, weekdays on SiriusXM's POTUS Channel 124, and anytime on the SXM app.
1: Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter,
2: YouTube, and at smirconish.com. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. NYBG's brand new online education program, Plant Studio, offers bite-sized courses tailor-made for you. Guided by plant professionals, dig into botany, floral design, landscape design, and more. Online learning your way. Register at nybg.org.